Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And that was Boss Gags, the Lido Shuffle. And uh, played that in honor and memory of a friend of mine who, uh, from high school, Mark Stater, who passed away over the weekend, way too young. And uh, someone I kind of reconnected with over Christmas, and he was in a band. We were in a band together. And uh, we played that song. And I can see him just back there. He was a drummer, just smiling and he was uh, full of joy, cared about people, cared about the world, um, worked with um, troubled kids for a while, and um, died way too soon. And my condolences to you and to his friends and family. Yeah, yeah. one, my, one of my favorite. Uh, we, I was in high school. We were playing in this band, and we were playing at this high school. So out in the country, and uh, I forget even how we got this thing, but we were playing for a senior party or something, and uh, and we played, and we had a break, and... I saw Mark over in the corner talking to this attractive girl, and uh, I was talking to my friend who had who'd gotten us the gig in this school, and uh, it, you know, it was time to get started, and our bass player was kind of, he was our organizer, he was yelling, come on, come on, and Mark didn't come, didn't come, so finally, you know, he came over and he goes, guys, she's a, she's a jean model. A designer jean model. And this was just when designer jeans were coming out. And uh, we said, no, nah, no. We actually later on looked, she was. And I can't remember the brand. But, you know, he was all, he was just a glow because he was, you know, we're these pretend rock musicians and this jean model. So we have our second break. And, you know, we're talking to people and we're getting ready to play again. And Mark is nowhere to be found. And the bass player is starting to get angry. And our keyboardist looks over and goes, but it's a gene model. <laughs> we played our next set without him, and uh, uh, yeah, long may he drum. There you go, gene. I mean, gene model. It's yeah, not... well, you know, and then in 1977, that was a that was a big deal. So that's a big deal in 2017. <laughs> when is it not a big deal? No, it, was, mean, it, was, it was fun. No, I mean, he was a good a good soul. So, anyway, any uh, rest in peace, Mark Stater. So we've got a quote today, huh, from we Richard do. Moore. Yeah. And it's actually, we, we are, you and I were talking, uh, just talking, life talking, and you were self-reflective about a little bit about what's this whole thing we do, whether it be podcasting or self-promotion or promoting others. And, and, uh, and even, you know, I mean, it's hard not to just let people have it nowadays because of being frustrated, whether it be about the election or something theological. And and there is plenty of fodder out there on social media that, you know, it's a little bit like shooting, you know, like shooting fish in a barrel. But it also, it taps into stuff. Sometimes, you know, we feel better if we vent. That's one dimension of it. The other dimension of it is that, you know, we do see ourselves as public theologians, as people who care about the world and and we want to get good ideas out there. We want to promote, you know, people that we think have something to say. So it's 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 kind of a tension. And after we talked about this, the next morning, uh, this was something I read in Richard Rohr, um, uh, a dangerous theologian, according to who? <laughs> the Gospel Coalition. Oh, yeah, the Gospel, the gospel Coalition. Fred yeah. Sanders sort of review Somehow, yeah, I, I just have this image of, you know, people, Gospel Coalition, like in bunkers somewhere, um, thinking out who's the latest. Well, then they came up with an Emissio Alliance. So it sounds like two factions in Star Wars, like the coalition forces are coming. Raise the alliance. Yeah, it's so, very, very so dramatic. I guess they're probably each vying for Putin's support. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Making yeah. American religion great again. Yeah. Anyway, this is what Richard Rohr said. I have to risk teaching and writing 
what I must trust as the universal wisdom of God, and just not my own ideas. I have no other choice. In doing so, I must be willing to be judged wrong by others more intelligent, wise, and holy than I. This is the leap of faith and trust that I and others must make in order to communicate even a bit of the great truth to which we each have our own access to. And and I thought that was... I, I, that was helpful for me, and particularly this being open to be judged wrong by others more intelligent, wise, and holy than I. So there's this boldness and a humility at the same time that I, I, I think is an interesting thing to think about in terms of in this, in this age where, you know, anybody and many of us have multiple ways of getting our ideas out there. And I'm thinking particularly those of us who, who are doing this within the theological realm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I was just reading a book by A.O. Scott, who's the film critic for the New York Times. He wrote a book about criticism uh, last year. I think it came out last year. I think it's it's called Better Better Living Through Criticism. And he got really, I mean, he was, I mean, fam- New York Times writer, so he's famous before this. But he basically wrote a review of the Avengers movie, the first in 2012. And Samuel Jackson basically tweeted out like something like, should this guy have a job? Uh, like, <laughs> like uh, oh, yeah, this is it. He, t- he, t- he tweeted out, A.O. Scott needs a new job. Let's help him find one. One he actually can actually do. Uh, and he said, I mean, what he said about the Avengers was the secret of the Avengers is that is a snappy little dialogue comedy dressed up as something else. That's something else being a giant ATM for Marvel and its new studio overlords, the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> and he said, you know, that assessment stands up pretty well, if I say so myself. Like, it's, like, and after he said The Avengers Age of Ultron came out, everybody was saying that right. about those films. And so, I mean, it's interesting, but that, that opens up, uh, like, the whole... Uh, nature of like this he has basically q and a Q&A, I think which is a form of an interview or something about this incident and criticism in general and they they ask like him basically uh if he um if he regrets that incident and he says like no not, not at all like it was started this amazing conversation right uh, and then he said that that later Samuel Jackson said you know 99% of people look at, 99% of the people in the world look at that movie, The Avengers, as what it is. It's not an intellectual exposition that you have to intellectualize in any way. Scott says, <laughs> Scott says in response to that, intellectualize is a deliberately ugly word, the use of which is an accusation in its own right. But really, it's just a synonym for think. And it's worth asking why it should be necessary to deny so strenuously that the Avengers might be both the product and a potential object of thought. The movie is very much an intellectual exposition in the general sense of having arisen from the conscious intentions and active intelligence of its creators, including Jackson himself. It also, like many other comic book entertainments, sets out to explore what fans of the genre and veterans of high school English would be sure to recognize as big themes, among them honor, <laughs> friendship, revenge, and the problem of evil in a lawful universe. And finally, and from my own perspective most vexingly, the Avengers shows what can happen when a playful storytelling instinct collides with the imperative of global profit that drives so much 21st century Hollywood production. All of which is to say the Avengers is an extremely interesting and complex artifact, and that its successes and limitations are worth puzzling over. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting because he thinks, you know, that, that I mean, b- being a critic, 
is something that many people are critical of, right? Like it, people, right. Sh- and and there are some people that think criticism has no place. You know that it that it really obfuscates and adulterates the art forms and engages. But he really makes a defense that actually what we're doing, it, it, we're all doing criticism of the of the of of the more refined sense. All of us are doing it, and he says that there's something about that's innate to the human nature to both render judgments and and praise. I mean, cre- you know, right. to I mean, judgments that are positive and negative about phenomena we we engage with that are the uh, the pr- products of thought. Like, I think it's very interesting. Like, it's like the Avengers is the product of thought. Like, it is if intellectualized, it's just to think. You know, so why can't it be the object of our thought? And he he talks a lot in the book about his motivation for criticism, and he thinks right. it's actually a very important part of the human condition. In in that, and he really like he he does a good job of sort of going back and forth on the poles of objectivity and subjectivity. I mean, he he doesn't he he doesn't land in like either swamp, but sort of says as we all strive for you know a, a more a better you know a more salutary more beautiful life, like part of criticism. It's criticism serves that endeavor, and that is where it's important, where, where we're actually right. go, going back and forth about what we find, you know, true, good, and beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I think part of the, of the trouble, though, is that, and I actually, you know, this idea of iron sharpening iron, I really, to me, you know, you and I have talked about this, but our discussions both that we, you know, record, but, you know, the hundreds that we don't, um, even some of the times when we've gone most back and forth are really, it's really helpful. I mean, because it's, you know, made us both, maybe, you know, I'll just speak for myself. It makes me walk back and say, all right, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this? Why did I react that way? Uh, am I just going after ideas? Is there something else going on? And I think that whole process is a very helpful one. But, you know, you and I have both commented that, um, there seems to be within the Christian community and the Christian, whether you, uh, you know, the whole, what you, whatever you want to call it, the social conversation, whether it be in podcast or Facebook or other places, there seems to be often a different kind of thing going on when, when people are publicly criticized. I mean, we've recently, well, the, recently, the thing that we were talking about, uh, the interview with the in the New York Times. Oh, right, right, right. We're t- everybody. So, yeah, which is interesting because so Tim Keller has this dialogue with Nicholas Kristof. Now, the interesting thing I found out later was they were actually on a panel discussion together somewhere in New York. And Kristoff was so kind of he was very engaged with Keller afterwards. Very. And Kristoff is a guy I think was raised in the church. I mean, I know he's read Hong's Kung on being a Christian and some other reflective. Is that why he stopped being a Christian? (laughs) But you know, he, he, he writes very positively about, about particularly evangelical Protestants and, and their work in the developing world. And he, after the dialogue they had or the panel, he wrote Keller a series of inquisitive emails, like real, and, Keller responded honestly, and then Christoph turned them into a column. He's like, "I might turn this into a column." Keller's like, "Ah, okay, I didn't really." But you know, it's so everybody, like all sorts of people, in, in mainline circles, in evangelical circles, were very, very critical of Keller's responses to Christoph. And I think you know, part of it is sort of like Scott McKnight wrote something great. He's like, "Well, like everybody says." Oh, if I would have said it, if Scott McKnight said, yeah, may, like, 
you could you could say well, you know his responses are you know are, are less than the ideal ones you would give, but you know what. Christoph actually asked him. <laughs> so there's yeah. something to your, his ministry that one of the top skeptics in the country is a public intellectual is going to this pastor and saying, hey, could you talk with me about this? And so like on some level, like, yeah. there's something incredibly salutary about that. Yeah, it was funny to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not – you're more of a Tim Keller fan than I am. I'm not a fan. I'm not a opponent. It just seems that he is someone who has earned the right to be given the access to things – he is given to. And, and the thing that strikes me, given as much uh, as many people look to him, uh, as much access he has to, you know, things like the New York Times, Morning Joe, other things, is that he always, to me, comes across pretty humble. I mean, I, I think in terms of uh, whether or not I agree with him on the fine points of theology, my impression of Tim Keller in these positions is he 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 gives a he gives a good witness to what we hope Christianity is trying to say to the world. Well, yeah, and one of the things that works about his charm, I think, it, where like he he you couldn't be a certain kind of big church personality in a place like Manhattan because people are so skeptical not right. just about the claims of faith but the trappings of it. For sure, you know. So he this guy that's kind of is bald. Can, you know, uh, not a paragon of fitness. I mean, he, he just looks like a kind of, you know, he doesn't look like an out of, ter- terribly out of shape guy or anything, but he doesn't look like some. He, he, he looks, looks like a, n- a normal n- guy, normal middle aged guy. Yeah, right? he looks like a normal. He doesn't guy. wear the black t shirt and the belt buckle. No, he doesn't. He wears, <laughs> like, he looks like he wears Dockers. <laughs> right. And he's probably had the same sports coat <laughs> right. for like decades. Yeah. And he kind of, but that, like, that's part of, I think, his charm. And, you know, it's interesting how he well, got. Well, I think that's who he is. He's yeah. just being who he is. He's not trying to be anything other than he is. And he, when he got to that church, I mean, the reason he was, was called to plant that church was the PCA assigned him to help a bunch of high power New York type of people who were like, we need a more intellectual evangelical church in Manhattan. So he found them three candidates and all three candidates turned them down. And so they're like, what about you? <laughs> he's like, well, I already have a job. And they eventually convinced him to come up there. To, to, to yeah. Be, so he's, yeah. So I think that like sometimes there, there are kinds of criticism that are not very, not as meaningful because they, they're, they're not actually meant to refine our sensibility with regard to what is true and good and beautiful. They're yeah. just kind of like, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of there was there was a lot of green and envy in a lot of yeah. what I read. <laughs> I mean, me too. I think, and you know, and those classic Calvinists are you know ready to get him for any jot and tittle they can find. Uh, you know, it was interesting about him too. He wrote this book that was huge bestselling book called "The Reason for God," and then he just wrote this re- recent book called "Making Sense of God." And I heard him interviewed, and they asked why he did it. He's like, "Well." I realized that a lot of people like the reason for God, but the only people that help are people already believed. Right. So I really wanted to write a book that started from presumptions that somebody who didn't believe at all and wasn't predisposed to believe might pick up. So I think that's just very interesting to admit that you redid a book because you realized it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. No, I do. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I remember being at something sometime, and uh, yeah, this this person would be kind of more of a classic Protestant liberal, and they were going off about Rick Warren. Now, I'm not a Rick Warren fan either, and uh, you know, someone once wanted me to come to see if we could uh, a group of pastors were going to discover if we were going to read a purpose purpose driven church together, and I go, man, if if you don't have a purpose, you shouldn't probably be pastoring. <laughs> you know, if you need that, but anyway, um, 
that's neither here nor there. But someone just kept going off on Rick Warren. And I finally, you know, I, was, I finally said, you know, when you raise $100 million to fight AIDS in Africa, then maybe you earn the right to say what you just did. And I, and I really meant that. It, 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 that was a conversation stopper. But but still, I mean, I think there's a sense where. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see what, yeah. Well, I, I just get sometimes I just get tired of people. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I mean, probably those of us in this work, we get enough critique of people who, who misunderstand us. And I think those of us who, you know, again, uh, not that I have. Uh, I, mean, I can relate to Tim Keller in this way, but. I understand the nature of, of having stones thrown at you. And, and I think particularly people of faith, given all the problems, I, I mean, when, after I read those critiques of Tim Keller, given everything that's going on in the world and the country, that they chose to waste energy doing that as opposed to, you know, pick 10 different things that are, you know, 100 different things are more important. And I think to me, that just, I think I even said, you know, sometimes I get tired of the whole nun conversation because I think a lot of people are just spiritually lazy and they're overjudgmental about people other than, you know, they judge other people so much harder than themselves. But when I hear that kind of stuff, all right, then I understand why. I just, yeah, I'm, you know, a curse on both their houses. So, any rate. So, I, I, but getting back to a more positive thing, and, and I've been thinking about this myself because. I just put something out uh, on Facebook to read the report that came from the uh, intelligence community. You know, this is just a re- the report about why, what Russia was up to and what they did. And I just said, this is out there. You should read it. And someone immediately, you know, someone jumped on it. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't, with no commentary. And immediately went into something, this or that and the other. And at the end, after they were, you know, Defending Trump and everything, they said. But I am a little uncomfortable with foreign, uh, you know, foreign messing with our elections. And I, you know, so I. I but instead, I said, "Go Steelers and have a blessed day." <laughs> uh, yeah, I do think it is interesting too. Uh, yeah, I watched a documentary on, P- on Putin. I was just like. My wife, I live with someone who, you know, lived in Russia for a couple of years and and is a Russophile. I mean, she's like, she used to love to go visit the Museum of Propaganda. (laughs) Since a woman who who worked there for the communist and now, she's like, look at the poster. People happy, looking fed. No one was fed. No one was happy. (laughs) Right. But but, uh, yeah, no, I think... um, that's interesting. One of the other things in the in, in the A.O. Scott book, which again the, the the first chapter is like a Q and A with him. I just I think an interview from somewhere. But the questioner says, "So you've written a book in defense of thinking. Where's the argument? Nobody's really against thinking." To which Scott responds, "Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Anti-intellectualism is virtually our civic religion. No, absolutely. Critical thinking may be a ubiquitous educational slogan, a vaguely defined skill we hope our children pick up on the way to adulthood. But the rewards for not using your intelligence are immediate and abundant. As just consumers of culture, we are lulled into passivity, or at best." prodded toward a state of pseudo-semi-self-awareness, encouraged toward either the defensive group identity of fanhood or a shallow, half-ironic eclecticism. Meanwhile, as citizens of the political commonwealth, we are conscripted into a polarized climate of ideological belligerence in which bluster too often substitutes for argument. And then he says this, which is interesting, there is no room for doubt and little time for reflection as we find ourselves 
buffeted by a barrage of sensations and a flood of opinion. We can fantasize about our slowing down or opting out, but ultimately we must learn to live in the world as we find it and to see it as clearly as we can. This is no simple task. It is easier to seek out the comforts of groupthink, prejudice, and ignorance. Resisting those temptations requires, requires vigilance, discipline, and curiosity. I think that's just, I, particularly the end insight, that part of when I think things like criticism and conversation that attempts to be reflective is that like we we need more of it not less like because we can't we can't change the pace of the world at least anytime soon i mean we're sort of we're 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 this is the world as we have it so we could sort of have the benedict option and the this and the that and we're going to sit and you know kind of in in genesee abbey and bake bread and you know go back to you know 13th century baroque music or something you know but that's not generally going to happen so part of it is the is the Learning the art of living with a kind of living a more graced existence in, in a world that's that is very much like you described. It. Like, are you kidding me? Intellectualism is our civic religion. Well, you know, uh, I did not watch the Golden Globes last night, but you know, one of the you know Meryl Streep got some award, and oh gosh, almighty, it's been. And she used the opportunity. Okay, uh, instead of you know celebrating herself. She spoke out a critique of what's going on in the country. And again, Meryl Streep's a pretty articulate person, okay? And 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 not uh not you know, she's she's good at her craft. And and it's interesting. Now, again, whether or not you agree with it or disagree with it, the fact that um most of us would applaud Bono, you too, using his platform yeah, to, to try yeah. to try, you know, to to, which and and his agenda is not just philanthropy. There's a political dimension to what he's trying to do, but he's using his wealth and his platform to um, to try to make a difference in the world. Our president-elect used his entertainment platform uh, and all of the access that he has because of that to bring about what he thinks are important ideas. So there's a sense the critique of her using the platform that she had. Uh, I think that's questionable. Now, the other idea is you can criticize her ideas. And I think there's a sense where she threw out some things that you could criticize. But what I saw in the response was exactly just what you said, people emoting all over the place. Uh, you know, you know, she hurt our president. I love our president. Our president, you know, is owned by the Russian. You know, you, you know, the typical things going back and forth. So I, I think that particularly in this time where we know, for instance, that a foreign policy has manipulated these very emotive things that we are talking about here, that increasingly our public discourse is shrill and emoting after emoting, uh, then I think one of the things maybe we can model is being open, as Rohr said, to being criticized to try to be improved. I mean, I think one of the things that it struck me uh, just thinking about this is that uh, how do I how do I make myself open for the kind of, for people who are more intelligent, more, as he says, more intelligent, more holy than I, to help me along the journey. In other words, I do think if you're put in a position uh, where you are called to teach or preach or, you know, on some levels, we're all called to influence the world around us, then we have to speak. I think that's what Roar is saying. I have to speak. But I also have to, as a Christian, be open to be corrected. And somehow I have to communicate that that's that I'm open to that. Don't turn your comments off on your social media. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm reminded, I, I don't know if I've told this story 
before. And uh, I don't even how many podcasts have we done? I'm not sure how many we're up to. I don't know. Yeah. A lot. We've a done lot. a lot. Yeah, we have done a lot. We've done more than 100. Yeah. And uh, there's a story where there was a local bishop um, and there was a, one of the churches that St. Francis had uh, rebuilt, um, was being rededicated. And I, I always love, I mean, St. Francis, um, you know, God tells him, rebuild my church, and he takes it literally. So he starts rebuilding all these ruined chapels, but he then eventually realized that God was... God was using a metaphor. <laughs> Sometimes I wish in the Bible there would become, I wish there'd be divinely inspired. Now, I'm not talking about study Bibles, but because they think they are divinely inspired. But if God himself would say, metaphor, folks, I'm speaking right, metaphorically. Just like they have like the red letter by the words of Jesus and red letter, like metaphors and green letters. Like, <laughs> you know, like, this is a metaphor. All right. Or during the Sermon on the Mount, they had different signs that yeah, came yeah. up, you know, that uh, Andrew and Peter were holding signs up. But anyway. So in the course of giving this uh, dedication to this chapel, the bishop used every opportunity to just criticize Francis and humiliate him. Now, there were bishops, and one who eventually became pope, that were great defenders of Francis, but he, of course, was very threatening. People like him 70 years earlier were were burned at stake. So he, he Those uh, are the good old days. Yeah, it's good old days. So anyway, so this bishop goes on and on about how— you know, the fact that Francis, you know, or this person, he didn't even mention by name, it was used, shows how God uses the base. And, you know, it was a total insult. Francis's followers are getting agitated and upset. When the bishop got done, Francis ran up, fell at his feet, and said, thank you, Father. You alone speak truly of me. Yeah, true words never spoken. Yeah. Oh!